Hello everyone, how are we doing today? Glad you're here to join me. Thanks for coming back. Or well, if you're listening for the first time, which you might be, and have not started at the beginning, then you're also welcome. That's fine. I think that's uh, what all the cool people are doing, apparently. So, <clears throat> it's quite good yesterday, wasn't it? A bit of a sexy times in a, in a back alley. And uh, I didn't mention that it was... Um, what to mention and I was going to say it because I knew it was coming up I forgot to say it because I was busy doing driving and whatever but um, the Donald Trump thing that was obviously sets the time for it he'd just become president so now he's just uh, stopped being well he's going to stop being president so don't just probably got that already but just in case you're hearing, listen to this in the future, that's where we're at. It was four years since I wrote this. So, um, if you want context, go back to the beginning. But as always, you can donate at smarristons.org. That's what I'm doing this for. But, um, hopefully not much longer, in a way. I'm getting a little... <laughs> I think I want to move on from this now a little bit, but... Um, we're making headway, and I'll try and do a bit longer today and see how that gets on. But um, good to have you here anyway. Right. Chapter 38. After dinner, Evan made their excuses and then invited Craig to her bedroom again. I have something to show you, she said mysteriously as they walked up the stairs. And as soon as they were in, Evan picked up her notebook and opened it. Uh, revealing a drawing she'd done of Craig in his costume, standing in a heroic pose, just like a real superhero from one of the comic books. Wow, that's amazing, said Craig. You're really good at drawing. Thanks. I want to be like my dad, be a writer, but to do a graphic novel. You should, but what would it be about? Evan smiled. I don't know, something inspiring, something real. Something about bravery and courage, like a real-life superhero. Her eyes twinkled as she looked at Craig, and it, and it made him feel strangely impotent. Well, you can't write about me. I don't even have a sodding name, he sulked. You just need... Oh. Sorry, I got something in my tooth. Annoying. Sorry. <laughs> that's probably not good listening. I'm really sorry, that's horrible. Right, this is me. This is Yes, it's going to be fine. Right. You just need to be you, though. You don't need to be a... Have a you don't need a fancy gimmicky name. You know, just be who you are. That's all that matters. And you should be proud of that. As she said it, Craig did begin to feel proud again. The discussion with her dad had been a little de demoralising. But now... He knew that none of that mattered. He was an inspiration. He was a graphic he was graphic novel worthy. He was Craig. He smiled at Erin and she smiled back. What is the plan then, Craig man? she asked. Well actually I have decided to try and find out who broke into Leora's car and then get all her stuff back for her. No, I'm just gonna be adjust. Oh. Okay, there we go. Right, where were we? Sorry. Get all her stuff back. Yes. Why? It's just stuff, and she can probably claim it all back on her insurance anyway. And also, no offence, but why would you even bother with her? She sounds like a right cow. She isn't. She's nice. She's my friend, and I, I like her. Craig responded defensively and with a wobble in his voice. She doesn't sound like a friend. When have you ever been to her house for tea? When was the last time she did anything nice for you? When did she last ask how you were? You talk about her like, Loyora said this and Loyora said that and blah blah blah. I'm sick of her. Craig felt his face go red as the rage rose inside of him. How dare the strange little goth correctly interpret the relationship he was having with the love of his life. That may be so, he fumed, but I'm going to find out who did this to her and I'm going to serve them justice. I'm going to win her heart. Then he stormed out of Erin's house. 
Chapter 39 The drive up to Scarborough is pleasant, and Matt and Immy laugh and sing and talk all the way, as if they're going anywhere but a funeral. They find their B&B outside of the town centre and check in, and Immy changes into what Matt has dubbed her funeral costume, and then takes her to the address that David has given. As they pull up, Matt notices a figure standing in the window, looking out from within the house. Immy kisses Matt and then gets out of the car, and Matt notices the figure from the window move, and then as Immy reaches the door, it opens and a tall, handsome Matt, who Matt notes has a face, and <laughs> who Matt notes has the face and untrustworthy aura of a solicitor, steps out and hugs Immy, and then ushers her inside the house, where the party's clearly already started. Matt sits in the car for a minute or two, contemplating whether he should actually take, stake out the funeral, but decides against it, tells himself to stop being a jealous prick, and decides to go off and write somewhere. Matt drives around for about 40 minutes, but has no idea where he's going, and so ends up in the car park of Park and Ride. He's still feeling jealous, and he hates himself for it. He tries to write a few chapter notes about Craig, but the dialogue is completely out of tone because of the mood he's in. He pockets the notes and instead decides to go for a walk in town and so takes the next bus. Matt ends up by the beach where he buys himself some fish and chips and he sits on the seafront eating them. The air reeks of beef dripping and seafood like an almost like an invisible but chewy fog that clung that clings to everything that passes. It is a smell that makes Matt feel sick and hungry all at once. He watches a guy who is secret, secretly collecting scraps of food in a small plastic bag. He looks familiar somehow, but he can't place him. Oh, bit of a Carl figure, maybe? Um, it could be any one of the nutters he's had to perform to. He gets bored and ends up at one of the amusement arcades putting about 20, p 20 pounds worth of 2Ps into the one of the coin-pushing machines in an attempt to win Immy a cheap-looking keyring of a beach ball. Slowly but surely, the keyring is pushed towards the cliff of coins, and when it finally topples off the edge, along with, the mother, along with a mother load of coins, Matt feels supremely satisfied. As he walks from the arcade, he clasps the keyring in his hand, which have infused with the smell of old copper coins. Matt sniffs his hands and the smell of success. Then he returns to his car and heads back to David's address to pick up Immy. I love those uh, penny pushers. And uh, we went when we went to Scarborough on our holiday recently. I look forward to going to the arcades and doing that. Um, and the uh, the old copper coin smell, although, obviously with all the COVID stuff, didn't really want to sniff my hands after that. It's all like hand sanitising and everything, so, yeah, a bit of a different... Imagine if I'd written that, this novel in COVID times, it would have been, uh, would have been shit. Shitter, would have been shitter. That's, that's the correct word. Anyway, chapter 40. Carl heard Jennifer knock on the door to the annex at around midnight. Here we go. He, he was still wide awake after storming out of the kitchen earlier and had been thinking about the way he had reacted and what he should do. He went to the door and found Jennifer stood there in her dressing gown. I just wanted to say I'm sorry if I upset you earlier, she said. I didn't mean to pry or be inappropriate or whatever. Carl looked down and rubbed the back of his neck, then looked at Jennifer. She looked sad but pretty somehow her wide eyes searching for him through the half-light of the conservatory, and it made Carl feel bad, like he'd somehow taken advantage of this vulnerable woman's good nature. No, I'm sorry, I, I acted like a child, throwing a strop. You know, I'd have your right to ask, and I promise I'll tell you what I can. It's just difficult, so you'll have to bear with me. It's okay, let's not do it tonight. Okay. <clears throat> they stood, they both stood, and in that moment, Carl felt the urge to reassure her, comfort her, and so he reached out and placed a hand on her arm. And somehow, either she moved or he moved, but their bodies met. He rubbed his hands up and down her arms slowly, and she rested her head on his chest, 
and then slowly they moved their arms around each other. Carl couldn't remember the last time he'd held someone like this. He didn't think he wanted Jennifer in that way, but in the moment he could feel his heart rate quickening and his hands begin to tingle. He looked down and Jennifer was looking right back at him, her mouth reaching towards his. He could feel the heat of her lips near his, near his smell the sweetness of his breath, and he moved to, and he moved his closer to her. It's okay, she whispered shakily. I want this to happen. Their lips were poised, but their bodies became tighter, wrapped in their embrace, and Carl could feel how Jennifer could now feel Jennifer's heart beating against his chest, and feel the full, full warmth of her body embroiling him, and his head rushed until neither of them could stand it any more, and their mouths met, their lips smashing together, her hands tugging at his shirt and then the but button on his jeans, and his hands peeling back her dressing gown. They continued to kiss, and as they stepped back into the annex, and felt their way into the darkness to the room, where Carl already had the sofa bed pulled out. So that's uh, two sexy bits, kind of, in as many days. Felt a bit weird, kind of, but we'll address that. Chapter 41. I'm in the old man and flute. Oh, no. I'm at the old man and flute, open mic when I next see Mort, who is showcasing what he has said is an entirely new type of performance poetry, which involves him sitting in a cardboard box that he's brought with him and posting pieces of paper with words out of the slot that he's cut into the box. I feel that in many ways this performance oddly represents my novel. Later, later on, I show my recent chapters. He scans through them and I sit watching his moustache twitch, and then he suddenly looks up at me. What the bloody hell, man? Where's the sex? What sex? Carl and Jennifer, you can't just leave it that he pulls the sofa bed out. Where's his penis? His penis is where it needs to be. Mort gives me a confused look. Listen, Mort, my, my mum and dad are probably going to read this. People I know will read it. It's weird, it's not me. I'm not one of those sex writers. Bradley, Bradley, Bradley. You have to stop being a you have to stop being so coquettish. People like to read about sex. It's about fantasy. Yeah, but I don't want people to think about what I fantasize about, I argue. Why not? Jennifer sounds totally hot. I would. I can't do it. It seems wrong. Oh grow up, Mort says, and pulls a pulls a pencil from his pocket and begins writing on the back of the manuscript and then dictates as he writes. Carl and Jennifer fell on the sofa bed in the full throes of passion. Carl had acquired the windswept look of a sailor, and like a true sailor, he took command of the situation. Jennifer switched on the light and gazed up at his steely blue eyes and his chiselled features, and at that moment her erogenous vaginal fluids began to gush. Mort, you can't say erogenous vaginal fluid, but Mort wasn't listening. Carl's throbbing hand... Carl's throbbing manhood was now, no, Carl's huge mast was now fully erect, yes, and not even a tsunami could break it down. Jennifer reached up and took it in her hand and then guided it to her harbour. Her harbour, I remonstrate. No, no, you're right. Guided it to her secret harbour. She's no slagar, Jen. And then he penetrated her again and again and again. She groaned like the north wind until his ship had completely docked, and having dropped his anchor, he, he, had, he had fully explored her depths. What then? There were seamen everywhere. Bradley, don't be so lewd, you disgusting boy, Mort smiles. I'm not doing it, Mort, I say as assertively as I can. Suit yourself, says Mort, and then walks off. Quite enjoyed that when I wrote it. It's not that bad, is it? Really. Aye. Anyway. Chapter 42. Craig's anger continued to... Oh, come on. Glasses off, maybe. One of those days, I've just been looking at the screen all day and now reading this. Feels me really weird a bit. Anyway. Craig's, Craig's anger continued to range as he cycled back home from errands. 
He'd gone to show Aaron and he was going to show Aaron and Leora how serious he was. He immediately got into his outfit, gathered his weaponry, and then left the house. He wasn't entirely sure what he was going to do to prove himself, but he was determined. By the time he left, it was dark and the streets were quite quiet. He walked towards Leora's house first, thinking that perhaps he might pick up some clues. All the lights were off in the house, as were her neighbours' houses. Craig crept to the front of Leora's house, where her car was parked up. The window had been fixed, but Craig did notice there were some scratches around the door frame. Perhaps there was something of a clue in those scratches, he thought, as he shone his torch on them and moved his face closer for inspection. It was no use, though. Even if there was a clue within the scratches, how was Craig to know? He clicked off his torch, but as he did, he heard the sound of feet behind him. In the reflection of the polished window, he briefly saw the reflection of three or four faces behind him, followed by darkness and a blow to a head, and then nothing. The next thing Craig was aware of was his throbbing headache, and the fact that even though he was lying down, he was moving in what sounded like it was a vehicle. He tried to move, but his hands and feet were bound and tied together, and everything was dark. He tried to memorise the turns that were being made, like he'd seen in a film once, but it was no use. His mind raced to the worst-case scenario, and he was scared that it was quite likely the last time he'd ever ride in a car, the last time he'd ever be hugtied, and the last time he'd be kidnapped by a gang of strange men. His heart beat so much... His heart beat... Beated? His heart beat? I put his heart beat, it must be right. Well, I can't say it must be right. His heart beat so fast and hard that he worried that he might die of a heart attack before any of these men had the chance to kill him. But just as he was thinking this, the car stopped. Craig heard muffled voices, then the sound of the boot opening, and he felt his limbs being untied. He was lifted out of the boot of the car and then dragged into a building, round some corners, down some stairs, and then he was tied to a chair. It was then that he heard a familiar voice. "'What do we have here?' said the familiar voice." Someone looking where they shouldn't be looking, replied a voice behind him. Suddenly the hood was pulled from Craig's head. The light of the room was dim, but he could see the outline of the figure in front of him. It was a figure he instantly recognised. It was the figure of his boss, Mr. French, Leora's dad. Ooh. Bit of a twist, eh? Yeah. Bit of a twist. Right. Matt is a little late when he pulls up to David's. Oh, sorry, this is chapter 43. Matt is a little late when he pulls up to David's, but he's still not heard from Mimi. The house looks quiet and he wonders if there's anyone there at all, but then he sees an elderly couple leave the house. He texts Mimi to say that he's there and then waits. He tries to distract himself by playing games on his mobile phone, but it's no use. He curses himself for his pathetic jealousy but at the same time he can't shake the nagging feeling that he has about this David guy. He holds his nerve for about 20 minutes and then gives in and goes to the front door and knocks, waits, and then hears someone laughing and shouting. Then the guy who he recognises as David opens the door to him and smiles. Alright, sorry to bother you, but I'm Matt, Amy's boyfriend. I've come to pick her up. David's smile becomes infused with a hint of sarcasm and what Matt perceives to be a slightest hint of disdain. Oh, I'm sorry, mate. She's just in the middle of something. I'll go and tell her. David says through slightly gritted teeth, shuts the door to and then stomps back into the house. He can hear David and Immy talking. Matt decides that David's scarred accent sounds especially stupid coming out of his mouth. He hears Immy calling goodbye to people then hears the footsteps approaching the door again. It opens, and Immy smiles at Matt, and he forces his most natural smile in return. Then, he turn, then she turns on the doorstep, reaches up on her tiptoes to hook David goodbye. I'll see you later anyway, okay? Matt's, con- Matt's conscience niggles at him, despite the fact that he doesn't like this guy and says so. I'm sorry for your loss, David, by the way. Always tough, the loss of a nan. <laughs> Nothing that uh, calls back to him in uh, 
What's his name? Ed. Having a having a go. Oh, your nan. Lost your nan. It's it always it is always hard. Loss of a nan. In fairness. Anyway. Then he runs out of things to say. That um. So sorry for loss of your nan. And then he runs out of things to say that are likely to turn sarcastic. David doesn't say anything and just stands in the doorway as Matt leads Emmy back to the car. They get in and put on their seatbelts and Matt sees David still stood there looking at them. Matt can't decide if it's a look of longing for Emmy or a look of hate for him or if he's maybe imagining the look. However, David stands there eerily still watching them as they turn the car around and then drive back up the road until Matt can no longer see him in the rearview mirror and he begins to relax. How did it all go? Okay, the service was nice. Just spent time with David and his family. Did I interrupt? Only when I texted you and he didn't reply and when I went to the door, David was very cheerful for a morning grandson. What do you mean? Matt shrugs. He doesn't know and he doesn't want to say at least. The phone wasn't silent from the service, but you knew it was here, and I don't know why David was. I don't know why David was cheerful. People can be cheerful at funerals, though, can't they? Matt senses that that this isn't going to go the way he wants, and so he tries to save it somehow. It's just he seemed very happy when I came to the door, but then he was acting like he hated me. Matt smiles slightly, impressed by his quick thinking. Flip reversing it to make David look like a pathetic, insecure loser. David doesn't know you. He doesn't know how great you are. Emmy reaches and grips Matt's hand, and Matt smiles, a smile of victory. Anyway, he asked if he can join us tomorrow, so he'll get a chance to get to know you then, won't he? Matt feels his face drain of all its colour. You clever boy, David, he thinks. You clever, clever boy. There we go. I don't know, like, that was four years ago. I don't know why I had a thing against solicitors. I haven't really dealt with any. At that point, um, in my new job, I was starting to deal with some on a more daily basis. But I can't have had that much of an impression already. And um, so we, when we moved house, there was a pain in the arse then. But, yeah, I don't know why I described... Uh, David as a untrustworthy solicitor type. But, uh, there you go. There you go. If you're a solicitor listening to this, then I'm sure you're all right. Yeah, you're probably all right. Right. Chapter 44. I can't believe that's just happened. I can't tell you how long I've wanted to do that to, with you. Jennifer said as she drew back, drew herself closer to Carl rested the head in the space between his chin and his chest. Carl just lay there, thinking, and then kissed her forehead briefly to show that he was still there with her, that he cared. You okay? she asked him. Yeah, I'm okay. Then he shifted briefly so that she dislodged from him. Then he sh- And then he shuffled. Then he shuffled. Mm. Then he shuffled himself up into a sitting position. He rubbed his face with his hands and then looked down at Jennifer, who appeared to be concerned about and about to say something, but Carl knew he had to speak first. Listen, Jennifer, I need to tell you, it's not, it's not fair to you. Jennifer sat up and immediately looked confused and concerned. What is it, Carl? What is it? Carl took a deep breath and then looked down at Jennifer. I didn't come here to write a novel. I think you know that already. Even though, even though I'm writing one now, that isn't why I'm here. I was involved in a car crash about six months ago. It was pretty serious. I was okay physically, but it shook me up mentally. I lost my job. I had a breakdown, and that's why I ended up here. On a whim. That beat hutch where I was living. I broke into it. And basically, I'm just screwed up. And Carl's voice began to to break into a sob. Jennifer stroked his back and Carl regained his voice. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry that happened to you, she said. Was anyone else injured in the crash, Carl? Carl felt strangely exposed as he sat there naked with another naked stranger next to him. 
There was no one else. There was nowhere else to hide. Yes, someone died. Carl said, as if he rem was remembering something forgotten, and then like, the realization grew into fullness of it was, and it was real for the first time. That's not very well written. My wife, my wife died in the crash. Ooh, forgot his wife died. To be fair. So, a lot happened there. I wonder where we are time-wise. 25 minutes. Right, so this is like a peak. And so, had a lot happen. Oh, it's a bit of a cliffhanger. Um, the next chapter is called Intermission. Dear reader, I don't believe many books have intermissions, but I, leave, but I believe they should. I've seen books titled Intermission, but they don't have intermissions. To be honest, I don't know and I can't be bothered to find out. If you've made it this far though, then thank you for ploughing through. I know how much investment it is reading a book. It isn't like listening to a record or watching a film or a play. A book is hours of commitment. And if you think that reading a book is going hard, is hard going, then you should try writing one. Honestly, it's ridiculous. But I expect that this book probably hasn't been the easiest to read either. And so I thank you and hope that the intermission here will allow you to take, to breathe and relax slightly. Oh, breathe and relax slightly after all the drama. I've not, oh, this is all in italics, so I don't really know why. I think I've diffused it, it's quite difficult for me to read. I think it might be a bit dyslexic. I don't know. Jean-Francois Mamartel once wrote that the intermission the intermission is a rest for the spectators, not f is a rest for the spectators, not for the action. Well, Jean-Francois, I have only just heard of you, thanks Google, and I say that you are wrong. The interval is just a rest for the spectators. The interval is just a rest for the spectators, it is also for the performers. And you, dear reader, may not have realised it yet, but this is a performance. This is very much performance art. And no, I'm not just saying that to try and look clever or pretentious. Pretentious. It is literally performance art. Very literally. If you disagree with me, then I ask you, tell me what performance art is. Tell me what art and poetry are. See, not so straightforward. And so as a performer, I'm choosing to also take an intermission for myself. You may ask why I haven't just moved away from the cuter by way of interval. Well, I do that, but when I'm away, I'm thinking about this book constantly. And as a performer, I'm basically embodying the characters that I'm writing about. I'm living their lives and have been for, and have been for years, that I've been thinking about this novel. I'm not just saying that, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that I'm a method actor, what I'm doing is truer than that. And so that, that intermission is for me as well as you, my dear friends. So I beg you to go to the fridge for a drink. Buy some peanuts if you do desire, if you so desire. Sit and relax and enjoy the space. Bear, but bear in mind, and I believe that Jean-Francois Marmontel was correct here when he said that the intermission is not a rest for the action. The action is still happening, even as you read the sentence, and this word, and this one, and the next one, and even the next sentence, which I've not even written. The action is alive, and it is happening in these pages, in you and me. But for now, I will love you and leave you, for I too shall take my intermission. Perhaps drink a brandy. That's a drink we imagine the great writers drinking, isn't it? I don't really like brandy, though, to be honest. I'll probably have a can of beer and some Bombay mix, or a couple of Uncle Joe's mint balls. I hope you continue to read through. I'm looking forward to the second half of the book. And the second half is really where the magic is going to happen. And whatever happens, trust me. Okay. Chapter 45. 
it's really easy to create a sense of shock, a sense of sense, a sense of shock, a sense of, of surprise. I feel cheap doing it with Carl, but it was always planned from the beginning. He was always married, and he was always going to lose his wife. I felt perhaps that I could avoid it, but in the end, I feel, I feel how Carl felt with Jennifer. I feel that I owe it to the reader. I wrestled with it, and more begged me not to. Said that it was lazy sensationalism, but the story needed, needs it. Otherwise, what then? But I feel that I've done the right thing, and the story is a point, where I, and the story is at a point where I can leave it and pick it up, because I need to develop Matt and Craig as characters, and figure out what their stories are. But I feel tired right now. The novel has begun to take over my life. It's become like a person that I have to live with and take care of emotionally. Someone I have to sleep with. Someone who constantly invades my thoughts and keeps me from sleeping and invades my dreams. The other day my computer broke and I had to spend the day speaking to someone in India who was trying to help me fix it, like a blind surgeon trying to explain to a bus driver how to perform an intricate operation. The whole thing was excruciating and frustrating and stressful. In the end, I managed to fix it, but I actually felt guilty that I, had to, I hadn't spent time with my novel. And then there was the doubt. Am I doing the right thing by my novel? Am I doing the best I can for her? Her. See the madness. See, the madness begins. That's because I've called the novel her. Um, I start to wonder whether I should have tried writing something less difficult. When I tell people that I'm writing... What? When I tell people that I'm writing, I'm perpetually bracing myself for the next question. What's it about? Each time someone asks the question, I pause for a moment and think, should I lie and try to save face? Try and escape with some dignity? But in the moment, I can think of nothing apart from the ridiculous truth. I'm writing a novel about someone who is writing a novel about someone who is writing a novel. I don't even know if I believe in the idea myself anymore, but I feel that it's the best idea I have. That I have, or worse still, that it's the best idea for me. What does that say about me? Maybe I should have focused on one story, but what is done is done, as they say. And the thing is that I enjoy the process. I like that I'm writing a novel. But what does it really mean? What value is in that? But then I guess you could say that of anything. I will make it work. I have nothing to say and I am saying it. That's what counts. A bit of a John Cage quote there, which uh, is in an Edwin Morgan poem. You know, there's loads of little bits in there which I think are smart, but really, not really. But um, it's enjoyable for me, I guess. Right, chapter 46. Mr. French now cast a, sinister, cast a sinister shadow as he stood before Craig. Craig would have rubbed his eyes with disbelief, but they were still tied behind his back. Not his eyes, his hands. That's not clear. And so he just let his mouth fall open with shock. Well, what do we have here? Mr. French said as he walked towards Craig. Craig had decided not to say anything. There was every chance that he would get out of this, as long as he kept his cool. What were you doing lurking outside my daughter's house? Craig kept silent and dropped his head, not knowing if he was more scared of seeing Mr. French or of Mr. French seeing him. Strong and silent type, eh? I respect that. I could see you are well-trained military right. Boy Scouts? It's all the same. I just want to know who sent you. What's your plan, eh? To take my daughter? Mr. French came right up to Craig's masked face, and Craig didn't know why, but he held his breath, held it so tightly and bit his tongue to stop himself from screaming or crying or laughing or saying something that would make him get into more trouble. You don't have to talk now, but you will talk. I will make you talk! Mr. French, I'm not going to scream. Mr. French screamed and kicked the chair that Craig was sitting on. Well, we have to go now. <laughs> this is so rubbish. 
Well, we have to go now. It is very late after all. I'm going to leave you here though. And I want you to think about what you want to do. Because I can make life very difficult for you. If you decide not to talk. And when I come back, you are going to talk. Do you understand? Craig remained and didn't even stir, didn't even dare move. Mr. French walked past him and he heard the footsteps walk away and then the door open and then slammed shut. And then there was, and it was then that Craig let go of his breath and he gasped for air as if it would somehow give the answer to him. He felt desperate and lost and he wanted to cry but something within him stopped him from doing so. Courage perhaps or raw survival instinct maybe. But at that moment Craig felt a strength in him that no matter how hard they pushed him, he would not break. He would be fearless all of a sudden. No, he'd be fearless. All of a sudden, he heard the door open, and all the courage left his body, and his resolve took flight, and instead of holding his nerve, he started to whimper. I'm sorry, please. I'm sorry, please. But then he heard a voice behind him saying his name in a whisper, and he froze. The binds on his hands were cut and his arms fell free. And as he turned his face, he saw the dim face of Erin smiling back at him. Craig, we have to go now. Now. We have to go. <laughs> Craig, we have to go. Now. We don't know where they've gone or when they'll be coming back. Oh, that's not good. I'll just say... Um, is a bit rubbish. I mean, hold on, who's writing this? Matt's writing this, isn't he? Matt's writing Craig. So, I don't know why Matt put in the uh, just easily escapable situation. Didn't bother taking Craig's mask off. Didn't do anything, really. Um, it's good, eh? It's good. I hope they make a film of this one day. It'll make no sense whatsoever. Right. Craig simply nodded and followed Erin as she ran to the door and up the stairs and then ran out of the building and across what appeared to be an abandoned building site and into a quiet street where there was a car waiting. Erin got in and shouted for Craig to get in the back, which he did. The moment he shut the door, a wave of relief crashed over him and the car moved away. Hello, love. You got yourself into a bit of a pickle, didn't you? said a soft voice. Nice to meet you anyway. Oh, I thought it was Craig's dad, not Craig's dad, Aaron's dad. And, Aaron, and Craig saw a woman's hand reach back towards him and a warm smile, a warm face beaming at him. Bloody hell. Mum, watch where you're driving. Keep your eyes on the road, Aaron barked. Craig couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe he'd been rescued. How did you know where I was? How did you find me? Craig asked. Erin turned now to look at him. I was worried that you were going to do something stupid, so when my mum came home, I asked her to drive me to yours. You weren't there, so we started driving around, and then I saw you in that car, and the men hit you and bundled you into their van, and so we followed you. At a safe distance, mind, Erin's mum interjected. What about the men at the building? Craig asked, puzzled. Well, they weren't the brightest bunch, Erin's mum continued. We saw them take you in. We were going to call the police, but we both forgot our phones in a rush. All this technology. What is the use? And so we took matters into our own hands, said Erin. All the men had gone inside, so I hid outside, thinking how to get in. And that's when they all came out and drove off. I mean, drove off as well. Ridiculous. I knew you'd still be inside, so... <laughs> I knew you'd still be inside, so that's when I came in and rescued you. Simple, easy as that. Craig smiled again and silently thanked the stars that he'd been saved. And so smiled Erin. I guess you weren't the only hero anymore. Yep. That's true. Chapter 47. Matt, I hope you don't mind about David joining us today. It's just I think he's having a hard time. No, I don't mind, Emmy. Not a problem. Matt and Emmy are driving to the stately home where David has suggested they visit. And Matt does mind. He minds a great deal. 
He minds so much that his racing thoughts and worries and paranoia kept him from sleeping most of the night. But Matt decided at about 5am that he's not going to be outplayed by this guy. Matt has decided he is going to be... He isn't going... Matt has instead decided he is going to be... Well there. Matt has decided he is going to be made... Look... Uh, Matt has, okay, I'm going to write this on the fly. Matt has decided he's not going to be made look insecure or jealous. Instead, Matt has decided that he's going to be breezy. He has decided that David is going to come off looking like a complete dick, although he knows it won't be easy. David already thinks he is ahead of the game. Meet at a stately home, you clever try. Oh no, meet at a stately home, very clever. Try and Mr. Darcy me out of the equation with your idyllic period drama setting. Well, we all know it's the stable boy wins the girl in these scenarios. Matt and Immy eventually turn up and meet David about one and a half hours late. Thanks to Matt accidentally typing in the wrong postcode of the satnav. Accidentally is in uh, quotation marks. Well done, Matt. Nice one. David looks pissed off, and as they park next to his car where he's standing with his arms folded, Matt and Amy get out of the car and make their apologies, and David tries to look unperturbed but their lateness, by their lateness, but the atmosphere is frosty. Matt offers David his hand. Nice to meet you again, mate. David takes his hand out of politeness but doesn't say anything. And out of the corner of his eye, Matt sees Immy pull a concerned face. They go in and pay, and then David walks ahead. I don't think he likes me, Immy. He isn't like him. Maybe it's the grief. Don't worry, he just needs to relax. With that, Matt jogs, jogs ahead to David, and Immy follows behind. Hey, Davy, pl- wait up. Please don't call me Davy. Sorry, man. So, anyway, tell me about yourself. Come on, don't be shy. Immy smiles as Matt playfully tries to interact with David in the same way he does with her when she needs cheering up. But Matt correctly re- but Matt correctly reads David like he would a heckler and knows that it's only going to anger him. David tries to remain stoic as Matt bounces beside him like an excited dog, talking to him in the voice of a primary school teacher until he snaps, much quicker than Matt predicts, and so his shock is almost genuine when David punches him in the side of the head, knocking Matt to the floor. That was too easy, Matt thinks as David storms off, shouting as he goes. Just go, piss off, leave me alone. Immy looks after Immy looks after David, but then looks at Matt, who is holding his ear and struggling to get up. We should go after him, Immy. I don't understand what his problem is. Matt gets up and stumbles in the direction that David went, but then falls down again. Actually, I think he might have done something to my ear. Come on, Matt. Leave him to himself. I'm not having you. I'm not having him go at you like that. Screw him. And with that, they leave. Easy. Too easy. That's, yeah. Things have been left awkwardly between Matt... No... Things have been left... Okay. Let's start that again. It's chapter 48, by the way. Chapter 48. Things have been left awkwardly between Carl and Jennifer after he'd told her about the crash. She had left him in the early hours of the morning, assuring him that it was okay, but there was just a lot for her to process. Carl wasn't looking forward to the questions she was going to ask him about his wife. He knew that it was a big thing. He knew he wasn't ready to answer those questions himself. He didn't even know how to process it himself. So just before sunrise, he snuck out of the annex and headed down towards the beach. The air was cool and refreshing as he walked down the drive towards the walked down the drive towards the road, and he felt free once again, breathing in the cool sea air. As he reached the end of the drive, he almost knocked over a man who was being dragged by his Labrador, but the dog stopped to sniff Carl, possibly smelling McGuffin on him. Carl hadn't expected to see anyone, let alone bump into everyone, anyone, and so he froze. Don't worry about him. He's okay. He's just curious, the man said. You must be Carl, then. 
and he extended his hand. Carl took it and shook it, a little confused as to um, how the man he, how the man knew who he was. And then the man introduced himself. Justin, I live next door. Jenny said she had a friend staying, and that you'd both started to walk. And then they both started to walk together. And then they both started to walk slowly together. And then they both started to walk slowly together as Justin talked. Right, okay. So, Jenny says that you're here writing a novel. Yeah, that's right. Cole tried, but somehow the lie didn't feel like it fit anymore. And he didn't feel as though he could lie to the older man. And so the truth just fell out of him. I was involved in an accident. I lost my wife, my job, and just ended up here somehow. Writing just seems to help, I guess. I'm sorry to hear about your loss, Justin said genuinely. That must have been hard. They kept on walking quietly down towards the beach. The sun was now beginning to rise over the horizon. The first glimpses of the sun, like sh pieces of shining gold way off in the distance, which soon grew like a burning flower. Its rays cast across the water, creating a metallic effect, or like a piece of hammered steel, I've used that one before, from where they were walking above. Um, a piece of hammered steel, from where they were walking above, looking down to the beach. Right, okay, sorry about this. You may consider it strange, Carl, but I find that there is something about the sea. Something supernatural, if you will. We can look at the sea and listen to it, but we can only see and hear a little of what the sea truly is. It's like we're seeing glimpses of eternity. This is just one bay among thousand. And what lies beyond those thousand bays? Vast expanses of water that are not fully able to that we are not fully able to know or explore or understand or even begin to fathom. Yes, we pretend that we are conquerors of the sea, because man has crossed it to discover faraway lands full of buried treasure, because man has ridden sea storms and sailed through to safety. But what of the boats that have been destroyed by the waves? What of those who have become lost at sea? What of the mountains that are below the sea? that are so much taller than the mountains of the land, underwater ranges that we will never be able to chart. What of the millions of uncharted species of sea creatures that exist namelessly without our knowledge? But the same sea nourishes the land. The rain clouds are filled by it, and then the rain fills our wells and reservoirs and feeds our crops, and in turn we are nourished, and each day the sea laps at our shores as if waiting to for us to meet with it. It's a complete mystery. They stood and watched a little while longer. Justin's dog sniffed around the, patch of the patches of grass. Justin, Justin fished into his pocket and pulled out a roll of mints and offered one to Carl, who shook his head. But Justin kept his hand held out and nodded towards them. So Carl took one, uh, peeled the paper back and took the chalky mints out of the wrapper. And then smiled at Justin. I don't know what's going on there. You know, I don't know why you lost your wife, or why Jenny's marriage didn't work out, or why my wife was cursed with Alzheimer's disease at such a young age, or why all that bad stuff happens in the world. All that is unknowable. But I do know that there's a lot of good in the world. The goodness that is in people. It's like the rain that comes from the ocean, the stuff that nourishes the land. And where that goodness comes from, I don't know, but I know it is in everyone. As surely as, their breath, as, as surely as there is breath in our lungs, I can see that you were hurt, that you were lost and maybe feel guilty about your wife. But I see good in you, and I see good in Jenny. But there was also a lot of hurt there and bitterness. You should be glad that you two didn't meet two years ago. I can tell you. Maybe there was a reason that you found each other. Maybe not, but look for the goodness, Carl. Carl nodded, nodded as he sucked his mint, and then Justin took his hand and shook it and smiled like someone he just met. Though someone had just told him he'd won a free holiday. Well, this has been good. We should do it again, Carl. Sure thing, replied Carl. 
and then smiled as Justin walked down the beach. So, yeah, quite like that. So that's based on a poem that I wrote. We'll get to that soon, one day. Uh, you can find it at um, the Fall Quarter Bandcamp. It's um, available to download, listen to. Do that if you want. How are we doing? My wife's going to be home soon. And chapter 49. So I'll just do chapter 49 because it's a short one. And then we'll call it a day, I think. Right. Chapter 49. Matt and Amy decide to move on from Scarborough after leaving David at the stately home. And they take a drive to York. It is about lunchtime when they drive through the villages where the streets smell of beef dripping. And Matt and Emmy laugh and talk. Matt talks about the ideas that he has for the novel. And they bounce ideas back and forth. Emmy talks about the funeral and the weird people who were there. And she talks about David and how weird he was. That he went for Matt. And Matt feels pleased. They end up driving around the ring road at York. And with nothing else planned... They decide to pop into York City, so they park the car and take the bus in. Matt has played a few gigs in York in the past, but he's never really seen the city. Amy has never been, so they both enjoy walking around the town, along the walls, through the shambles and down by the river, where they lie on a bench and let the sun beat down on them as they listen to the sound of the river passing by. It turns out to be a perfect day. So I'm going to leave it there. So we're making headway. Looking forward to uh, I'll say uh, looking forward to getting to the end. But I'm enjoying it. It's been fun. I think it takes a while to get into as with any book. But I hope you are doing alright, I hope you're enjoying it. I hope it's soothing you somehow. And yeah. That's it really. Uh, speak to you soon. Till next time. Goodbye.